Hello and welcome inside another episode of Take to Take. Just Nick Robinson and myself today. Luke has been unbelievably busy running around Sportsnet, so we decided to give him uh, some much-needed time off. So it's just Nick and I for today. We're not going to waste a lot of time. Well, first of all, Nick, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Pat? All right. I'm fantastic. Uh, well, I'm okay. Uh, Montreal is not in the playoffs, but I'm, I'm okay. Uh, we're going to jump right into our recap, starting with the Western Conference. So the first one, we want to get right into it, is Vegas and Chicago. This one ended in five games. Vegas was dominant basically all the way through. Chicago had some flashes of, of pretty stellar play, especially from Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves, but Vegas wins it. What do you think? Yeah, I think overall the series gave us a lot of uh, what we expected. I think this was yeah. probably the most predictable series from the standpoint that we knew Vegas was going to control the puck the entire time. And essentially, I think everybody knew that Corey Crawford was going to have to steal Chicago the series if they wanted to have any chance at it. And to Corey Crawford's credit, he tried his honest best and he was fantastic in some of the games, especially I think uh, game two, he was really good. And uh, games, uh, game four, and game five, game four, when they staked off elimination, like he was excellent. Mm-hmm. He did his best, but you know, anytime you give up 181 shots in a week to uh, another opponent, it's not going to go well. And from that standpoint, I think it, it was pretty predictable that Vegas was going to pepper Chicago and they were just going to have to scrape by, but unfortunately they weren't able to do that, but Vegas looks really good, Pat. Yeah. And Chicago is kind of in a weird situation i'm not writing off Taze and kane at all and i don't think i think obviously they're not going to be what they were but i think they still have a lot of good years left in them uh the future is bright someone like nick bodang coming up on the blue line um you've had oakfist too he went he went pointless but i thought he played some excellent hockey so there is a little bit of future there i think they're picking around 17th so say they could grab a guy like uh like dawson mercer for example i think they really like his game so the future is there for chicago and i think you know teams like chicago and montreal who Everyone kind of wrote off instantly, proved that they deserve to be there, Chicago knocking off um, Edmonton in the first round. So I think the future is bright for Chicago. I think Chicago fans should be happy with that result. Yep. Um, so, yeah, and you're obviously – I know you watch a lot of Chicago games, so you obviously know that yeah, it's, no, they, it's not too I, bleak I watched, for them. Yeah, I watched pretty much all the games of that series. And, uh, you know, I think Chicago is going to be one of the more interesting teams to watch as we head into the offseason because, obviously – They've now for a decade had their salary cap issues and, you know, they're going to have to get under the cap again this year. And they've got a lot of players expiring. Some players are going to have to move out of there. Somebody like Dylan Stroh might be traded, might be a casualty. And they've got decisions to make on their blue line. Like we said, the emergence of Boakfist and Boden possibly next year, Ian Mitchell, all coming up for that team. But you've still got guys like Mata, Seabrook, et cetera, on longer term deals. So Chicago's got a lot of decisions to make. We'll see where it goes for them, but I don't think they can be too disappointed with the playoff run gave their fans something to look forward to at least, but Vegas predictably beat them. And I don't think they have too much to complain about. So talking about Vegas, because they were unbelievable, honestly, probably one of the funnest teams in the entire league. I love watching them play every single one of their guys. I'm a big fan of Riley Smith. Uh, one of the better defensive forwards in the league. But let's talk about Vegas. Let's talk about Marc-Andre Fleury specifically because there was a tweet that surfaced uh, last night, or I guess Alan Walsh tweeted it, of Marc-Andre Fleury um, stabbed in the back. And I guess this is sort of indicative of what's going on behind the scenes in Vegas. I guess they weren't pleased with his performance. And you know what? I understand Alan Walsh's uh, move here because he has to represent his players. He has to make sure his players – are being talked about in a positive way, but Marc-Andre Fleury was not playing well. And right. that's what it came down to. If yeah. you're if you're Pete DeBoer, you have to put the best players on the ice. And if that isn't Marc-Andre Fleury, that's fine. And I think this, I, for, for me personally, I think this is pretty immature. And I think it's a, it's a bad look on both of them uh, because at the end of the day, you're a hockey player, you have to perform. And if you're not, you're not going to play. Right. Yeah. No, at the end of the day, I think you and I talked about it before the show, Alan Walsh doing his job here. He's, trying to get his player into the lineup, trying to get Marc-Andre Fleury playing. He's doing what an agent is supposed to be doing. But obviously, that's a pretty striking image. Obviously, catches the eye there. Pretty graphic stuff. Mm -hmm. It is pretty dramatic from that standpoint. But at the end of the day, the Vegas Golden Knights, we forget now because they're playing so well, and they have been since we entered the bubble. But 
they struggled at times, especially early on in the season before they made the coaching change uh, from Gerard Gallant to Peter DeBoer. But yeah. a lot of that too was Marc-Andre Fleury after his great start to his career in Vegas in that first year where he played excellent, you know, has really climbed back down to what he was at towards his dog days in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And Vegas's play was showing that, like that he was playing considerably weaker and they were struggling because of it. So that's why they went out and they acquired Robin Leonard at the deadline. And obviously now Leonard has provided that stability and net. And he has, I think he's lost one game now. And it was that one game in the Chicago series yeah. since he joined Vegas. So he's been yeah. excellent. There's it. Fleury can't get into the lineup because Leonard's playing too good. And it's Peter yeah. DeBoer's job, the same way it is Alan, Alan Walsh's job to get Fleury talked about. Exactly. It's Peter exactly. DeBoer's job to get the hockey team to win. So exactly. if Robin Leonard is going to get the hockey team to win, ultimately Peter DeBoer has the say and he's doing the right thing because Vegas is continuing to play well. Yep. I agree completely. Um, I actually just went on Twitter now to check uh, to pull up the tweet. So it turns out Alan Walsh deleted the tweet and Flurry is actually expected to meet the media uh, in Edmonton in just a couple of minutes. So I'm going to keep my eye on Twitter and see uh, what he says about that. But yeah, I think it's just immature. And I think, like you said, they're both doing their job, but if you're Alan Walsh, I think you need to think this one through. I think you need to, you know, they're in the playoffs. There's a pandemic going on. Like, there are other things you could be worrying about. I don't think this is fair because really Flurry has not been good. Robin Leonard's been better. And goalies know that. Flurry knows that, that he's going to get beat out of position if, if Leonard's the better player. We, we could do a whole show on Marc-Andre Flurry talking about yeah. how he's possibly one of the most overrated players, certainly the most overrated goalie of the yeah. salary cap era. Like he's been the beneficiary of playing on some really strong teams, but you know, at the end of the day, he had, I think it was the worst save percentage and goals against average ever for a goalie that won the Stanley Cup back in 2009 when the Penguins won. And then he was essentially the backup to Matt Murray and the two yeah. Penguins Stanley Cup wins in 2016 and 2017. Yeah. And then, you know, he was really good for Vegas in 2018, but he's really cooled off since. So, yeah. you know, it is what it is with Fleury. This is what he is now in the twilight of his career. Yeah. And we'll see where it goes from here. I wouldn't be surprised if, this result in a parting at in the off season. Yep, I'll I'll keep an eye on uh, on on Twitter, uh, see what what the quotes are yeah, if he talks about that. To. Yeah, uh, moving on to another series in the West, Colorado and Arizona. This one also ended in five games. This it looks fantastic for Colorado, not just because they won, but this looks terrible for Arizona, and not just because they lost. There is a lot of stuff going on, which we'll get into that. But let's start with the Avs because they look absolutely unstoppable. Nathan McKinnon looks like a freak on the ice. Kyle McCarr playing fantastic. Nazem Kadri playing fantastic. Uh, what are your thoughts on this series, Nick? Again, like we said with Chicago-Vegas, I think this one was really predictable yep. in a sense. Arizona does not have the puck a lot, and Colorado is has shown that ability, especially this season, to completely overload teams offensively. And it, we saw exactly that. Some of the scores in that, well, I think the final two games, what was the combined score, the aggregate score? It was 13 to two. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Like, again, Arizona just doesn't have those offensive weapons, those game breaking talents yeah. that Colorado has. And Colorado looks like that this may be the year for them to make a run. This yeah. group is still really young. They're going to be good for a really long time. They have built so well. And I think we're starting to see, we saw it last year, the past couple of years where they looked strong in the first couple of rounds where they were just on the cusp, it seemed, of being a true dominant force in the NHL. And I think they've shown throughout this regular season and now since the bubble uh, started that they really truly are that force that we all thought they were going to be. And they are going to be a force for a long time. Yeah, Um for Chicago, that's the thing is they're good now and they're going to be good. Obviously, Bill and Byram, Alex Newhook, Alex Bocage in the system. They have a lot of pieces. Some they can potentially move as well. I could see one of those three being moved for an immediate help right now. But they look unbelievable, and I'm really excited. They're such a fun team to watch. Um, Nazem Kadri again, that trade looks to be fantastic. Uh, I don't want to say steal, but that's worked out fantastic for – Yeah, for, exactly uh, what they needed. Yeah. Uh, so, as for Arizona, this is where – things are not good at all because Arizona is a complete mess. Um, they don't have a first round pick. They only have five picks total this draft. They're missing their third as well. Um, Nick Schmaltz is playing as their one C. 
and they don't have a GM. And another thing, which we'll get to, is Taylor Hall. But for now, what do you make of their series, and what do you see as the the future for the Arizona Coyotes? It's a bit uncertain with everything, because now that John Chayka has parted with the Coyotes, they were so. Th- this was John Chayka's team. He's had the reins now for a long enough time. And while a lot of people are going to point to, okay, well, this is further proof that analytics doesn't work because John Chayka's background with stathletes and everything. But I think this is just, it goes to show that a lot of John Chayka's moves were never aligned with what the so-called analytics exactly. community would have thought. He's made a lot of questionable decisions, notably, especially some of the contracts he signed, Clayton Keller's extension, Very the good. Oliver Ekman Larson extension looks iffy some of the players he's brought in like step on Kessel that were supposed to really elevate this team just haven't been able to do that and for a team that has really not won anything and needed the 2014 playoff to get in here for the first time since 2012 they're already stuck against the salary cap they don't have much wiggle room they're gonna have some money come off the books this year but they need it, it like they've rebuilt this team this is the rebuilded team yeah but it's not working and i don't know how you get out of this if you're the coyotes right now i I wouldn't want to take this team over right now if i was an incoming gm no and i feel like because it's arizona and no one's talking about them no one realizes how weird and terrible their situation is uh you have castle three more three more years at 6.8 you have step on two more years at 6.5. You have Schmaltz signed all the way till 2026 at 5.8. He's your first line center. Um, the Keller extension uh, was another weird one. So yeah, it's not looking great for, for Arizona, um, which leads us to another player, the big one, Taylor Hall, uh, probably the biggest, if not yet, the biggest uh, free agent on the market this year. So there was a tweet by NHL insider, but just reporting on what Chris Johnson said, And what Chris Johnson said was um, that Taylor Hall is more concerned with finding a stable winning situation where he would fit in well, rather than focus on just landing a big money contract. He added that the COVID situation and Hall being in the playoffs um, two out of the 10 seasons are major factors. So that's brutal. Hall has not had a rough, has not had a very easy go. He's had some good seasons, but looking at where he's played Edmonton when they were at their absolute worst, um, not pretty close to their absolute worst playing in New Jersey, which is not a hockey market. And then going to Arizona, not a hockey market. I think this just screams uh, a hockey market. Now who has the space for him, especially with the flat cap, we'll see. But um, I think we can both say he's as good as gone from Arizona. Yeah, I would think so. I don't even think they could afford to bring him back. It wouldn't, you know, probably back in January where it looked like Arizona was really going to be pushed for the playoffs when they brought in Hull sort of earlier in the season, yeah. I, could, I could have seen him re-signing then. But mm-hmm. now, especially seeing how things have played out, I, I just can't see it. I don't think it makes much sense for him either, especially if he wants to play in the playoffs. I could see him, though, taking a bit of a pay cut with a better team just to make sure he gets that success. Because like you said, Pat, he hasn't had an easy go in his NHL no. career. He's been a part of some really, really terrible teams. Uh, how many times have Taylor Hall teams won the draft lottery? Three times with the Oilers. Yeah, exactly. Twice with the Devils. Like, you feel for the guy because this is an MVP caliber talent, somebody mm-hmm. that won the Hart Trophy just a few years ago. And to see him not be able to thrive on the biggest stage is yeah. really upsetting as a hockey fan. And, like, I pulled up a chart here just to show you, like, a little distribution visual of Arizona's scoring. And it's just so weak. There's a couple of decent talents they've got there in terms – like Schmaltz is fine, but he's not a 1C. Keller's okay. He's probably overpaid. Dvorak and Garland are okay players, but these are good complementary guys. They just, yeah. there's no game breaking talents there outside of Taylor Hall, who yeah. quite frankly struggled in some of his time in Arizona just because of that lack of a surrounding cast. So, again, like I said earlier, I wouldn't want to take this team over right now because it seems like it's just a mess of big contracts and mediocre talents. Yeah, yeah, I would agree completely. If you were to bet right now, we're going to have an episode later on where we talk about free agent destinations. We're not going to touch on that now. But if you were to just pick a team that Hall goes to, where do you think? 
It, it's so hard to say because I think a lot of people earlier in the year were suggesting Calgary could be a fit, but I know we're going to touch on them later. Uh, and their core group, knowing that this could be the end for them, it's really, really difficult to see where Taylor Hall could end up because they, there's a bunch of roads he can go. He can go to perhaps like an up-and-coming team that's yeah. rebuilding. Like I could yeah. see somebody like Detroit throwing money at him because they've got yeah. some space that's going to be freed up soon, and they're going to want to add talents as they rise up the ranks of the league again. But I could see him taking a pay cut to go somewhere else. I I can't name one off the top of my head because yep, that's fine. everything's so uncertain right now yep. because of the COVID era and what the realities of the hockey world are now with the flat cap over the next couple of years. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Taylor Hall. Yep. And I keep forgetting he, I, he's 28, which is seems so weird for me because I remember when he was drafted and to think that he's almost, he's approaching 30 pretty quickly is a little weird. Anyway, moving on. Dallas and Calgary, this one ended in six. Uh, Calgary had spurts of some pretty solid play, but overall Dallas took them over, especially in the last game. We saw Matthew Kachuk's uh, reaction. He was pissed with his team's performance. Um, Let's start with Dallas. A team that everyone thought was so top-heavy is finally being able to redistribute offense, especially in that game when Sagan, Ben, and Radulov were not the main point contributors. It was mostly Gurionov and Hintz. Right. and other guys like that. So what do you think of, of Dallas's resurgence here? Well, I think, like you said, it's all about the depth scoring. Gurionov um, has never gotten the ice time that he deserved. I think he's been one player that sort of people who like underlyings pointed to as a potential breakout star because he's always shown that he's had that talent. He right. was really good in the AHL uh, towards the end of his AHL time, and he's been solid in his really limited minutes for Dallas. Mm-hmm. And he should be somebody that's getting a lot more ice time than his. And he showed why in that Calgary series, a four goal game. Uh, Rope Hintz looks like he's going to be a really, really impactful player for them for a long time as well. And like you said, they are top heavy. Well, Ben has certainly hit a huge decline in the past couple of years uh, after signing his massive extension. He still has that ability to break a game open. I think he is still a good, good player. Uh, Same goes for Sagan and Radulov. They're both just really solid players and, you know, they've got great, goaltending with Hudobin and Bishop as their 1A, 1Bs. And uh, we've talked about their blue line before with Haskinen and Klingberg. Like, you can't go wrong. This is a solid built mm, team. Yeah. Rick Bonus is – a lot of people have questioned his ability as a coach. After Jim Montgomery left the team, Rick Bonus maybe not the best coach, maybe not as – he sh- should probably push them more offensively than he does. He is more of a defensively-minded coach. But – it seems to be working right now for Dallas. They're obviously thriving, at least in the past couple rounds, off a pretty high shooting percentage compared to what they normally do. They are scoring a lot more. But, you know, it ha- what we've seen in hockey before, it's all about getting hot at the right time. And Dallas seems like they're hot. And now uh, moving on to play Colorado, I think they're hot at a right time to where they probably could compete really well with this Colorado team. Yeah, and we're going to touch on that series as well because when we touch on predictions later, I watched the Dallas game last night. I was so impressed with Dallas. I love watching Colorado, but there's something about Dallas. They have a bit more edge to the way they play. I'm not sure what it is, but they look fantastic. Um, yeah, I would agree. Uh, it comes down to depth scoring. That was the the criticism for them because if the team can shut down their top line a couple of years ago, no one else is going to do the scoring. And now you add someone like Heisken in, uh, like you mentioned, their goaltending duo. Um, as for Calgary, I know we talked about this, I think three episodes ago, Calgary looked terrible. Like, right. Like Absolutely. awful. Uh, Sean Monaghan, I understand the upside with him, but he is playing some absolute terrible defensive hockey. Uh, Goudreau was not as impactful as we've seen. Um, Matthew Kachuk wasn't playing. So that's obviously a negative, but in someone like Mark Giordano, I wasn't overly impressed. Do you think this is the end for Calgary's core? Yeah, I think it, it- all his playoffs did was just highlight that this really is the end for this core group. Yeah. It just hasn't worked how maybe we thought it was going to around 2015 when they were sort of on the upswing. It, look, their best players throughout the playoffs were Milan Lucic, Sam Bennett, and Matthew Kachak and Elias Lindholm. There was, there was as well. Dubé as well. He yeah. deserves a mention. There was like nothing from Monaghan and Goudreau, those guys that, They've looked to so often throughout their tenures in Calgary. So I I do think this is the end for that group. I think it would be smart to pull out now if you are the Calgary management because 
you, they can still get good assets for these players. And uh, barring any sort of miracle, it's not going anywhere for them. There's nothing no, that's going to push the needle in a different direction all of a sudden now. I don't think that's coming out of their system. No. They need to stockpile some younger players. They need to change their approach. Jeff Ward is an okay coach. He did well after taking over for Bill Peters. Whether you need to explore there, what his future is, what coaching future is, I don't know. They're, they are like Arizona, but in a different way. They're a yeah. bit of a mess right now. And they're going to be a team to watch in the offseason because I think this definitely could be the end for those players. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Sam Bennett was a player I had high hopes for um, mm-hmm. coming out of Kingston, and he has been nothing short of a disappointment. He played well this series, but even then, if, like, if Milan Lucic is one of your better players, that's a problem. Johnny Goudreau was absolutely invisible. He was not the uh, 2014-15 Johnny Goudreau we saw. Certainly not. Um, Sean Monaghan, again, I know people like Sean Monaghan, but he – that was some of the worst defensive hockey I have honestly ever seen. Absolutely. Uh, he looked absolutely dreadful. So it's, it's, and, and even like you mentioned some of the moves they made Gustafson, I think that was a fine pickup, but it was also mm-hmm. kind of weird because he's getting older as well. So um, I'm not sure what trajectory they're kind of going for, which direction they're going to go. Giordano is already 34, 35. You know, yeah. He's getting up there. So it'll be interesting to see um, how they move forward. And even as, as good as Matthew Kachuk is, how, he's not like an impact scoring forward. He's just, and he's an impactful player, but he's not your go-to scoring guy. So we'll see what happens there. Definitely not a great situation if you're a Calgary Flames fan. Um, anything else you want to add or we'll go on to the next series? No, uh, uh, definitely going to be players to watch Goudreau Monaghan yeah. in the off season. If Calgary can get good assets for them, I think they're going to do it. Uh, yeah. I, I tweeted out during this week after Calgary was eliminated, I think the Senators should sniff around it. I think they're definitely one of the teams that yeah. should look around it. Definitely. Monaghan would be a great fit. Yeah. We, I, I've said before, you know, this is, this is the off season where we're going to see how serious the Senators are about their plan. Like Eugene Melnick has stated in the past that this is the era of unparalleled mm-hmm. success that's incoming where they're going to be spending high and they want to be one of the best teams in the league. If players like Gaudreau and Monaghan are available, then they, the Senators with their stockpile of, draft picks and B-level prospects. And they've got some good young players that they could afford to move. I think right. they should definitely be sniffing around these players because, you know, that, that'd be a good sign of intent to what they plan on doing with this team. So definitely something to watch, I think. All right. We went to the final series in the Western Conference. That is the Vancouver Canucks and the St. Louis Blues. Vancouver played excellent, excellent hockey. They won in six games. Um, the biggest question mark for Vancouver, the thing that we talked about the most was Patterson and Bester need to perform Hughes as well, but they also need secondary scoring to really pick it up. Miller coming into this had two, three playoff goals in like 61 games. He started to pick it up. Someone like Vertanen who struggled and wasn't actually playing because of something happened. He picked it up. Secondary scoring, Tyler Mott, um, started to really pick it up for the Vancouver Canucks and they look like a lot of fun. Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, like you said, a lot of fun, the Vancouver Canucks. They have played really well since they came into the bubble. And that young talent is just starting to play well at the right time. That's the good thing for a team like Vancouver. There's really no expectation of them yet to be this good. And I think they're playing loose hockey, which is great, I think, always in the playoffs. When you can play loosely, just – look like you're not carrying the weight of the entire city on your shoulders. I think it definitely helps, especially a young team like that. Elias Pettersson, I think we have to start talking about him as one of the best players in the league. He has been extraordinary. And Quinn Hughes, we know, we talked about him a lot. Lucas talked about him a lot this year, is going to be a star for years to come on the blue line. These guys look great. There's a lot of comparisons being thrown around to the I was about to bring this up to I knew you had thoughts about that. Okay, yeah. Go, yeah. You have the floor. You have the floor. Yeah, no, I, I told you after, I think it was Pierre Lebron that tweeted out that he sees a lot of 2009-era Chicago Blackhawks in this team. I wouldn't go that far. It, the Vancouver Canucks are a good, fun, young team. But, you know, I think it's – I, I hesitate to use the word disrespectful to the Chicago Blackhawks. That's a bit extreme, but it almost is because, you know, the, the 2009 to 2015 – era the Chicago Blackhawks one of the best teams we've ever seen in the NHL they the amount of good players that cycled through that team and then went on to have impactful careers either for the Blackhawks or for other organizations there's so many uh Jonathan Taze Patrick Kane Patrick Sharp Marion Hossa Andrew Ladd like just to name a few 
uh, stayed in the league for years after Bufflin was another one. Like, you know, that was, that's a special team. And, you know, they were broken apart because of the salary cap, whereas Vancouver already in their first year of success is stapled up against the salary cap. So I wouldn't go that far, but I think, I think when you make that comparison, it takes away almost from what the Canucks are right now, which is a good young team. They're having a good run. Definitely. They've got good young players. They're probably going to continue to add more young players. And they, I think they're going to go up from here really. So I I would agree. I think with Vancouver is the sort of like revisionist history. I don't think it's really fair for LeBron to make those sort of comparisons. Vancouver is its own thing and let Vancouver be their own thing. Cause like you said, that team, that was honestly that hockey, even with LA was some of the best hockey that I think has ever been played, especially in the playoffs. So as for St. Louis, um, Tarasenko came back from injury, seven points in 10 games. That's fine. And he, he looked, he looked fine. He wasn't like, um, the question mark, and the biggest one is Alex Petrangelo, who had a quote, if you don't mind um, pulling that up uh, about yeah, his that. future, because obviously he is a free agent this summer. And all the talk is about him potentially going to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, That's going to pick up a lot, I think. Yes. So uh, more so when the game is over, it's not a fun situation to be in, especially when you've been somewhere your whole career. But it is what it is. So I guess my really my only thought is to get home, see my kids and see where my future takes us. Um, do you think he stays? It's hard to say right now. Obviously, I think Petrangelo's had a great career in St. Louis and the Stanley Cup last year really put the bow or put the ribbon on the gift there for all the St. Louis fans. Like it's, he's been, he's had a great career with St. Louis and he's their captain. He's their go-to guy. He had an excellent year as well. I think Petrangelo is a strong player and he should age fine like he should age relatively well. So I think it would make sense for a team like Toronto to be in somebody that a team that needs a defenseman really, really bad. Yeah. I'm just pulling up a chart here, of sort of Petrangelo's impacts at even strength and on the power play. Like if you just look at that, it's, he's one of the top 10 defensemen in the game. He has been for a long time. Not often those guys are available on the market. I think St. Louis should do everything in their power to keep hold of him. I don't see why they couldn't get him for cheaper than market value based on the fact that he is their captain. He's been there his whole career. Historically, that sort of goes in the favor of the holding team that has the player. Yeah, They should be able to convince him to stay around. They're a good team. St. Louis is still going to have a lot of years, a lot of shots left at the cup. I think they just fell flat this year. They didn't get the goaltending that they got in the playoffs last year. I think that's a big reality in all this. And, you know, Petrangelo obviously disappointed because how do you – how do you calm down after the high of winning the Stanley cup last year? You don't, right? It it stings that much more after you taste that victory. So I don't blame Petrangelo for being upset and just being really low key on his future right now. But I think the Petrangelo to Toronto rumors and discussions are really, really going to start to pick up as we enter the off season. Yep. And he's exactly what they need 30 years old. And I think if you're Petrangelo at this point, you just want to win again. Like you said, obviously winning the cup last year. And if you look at St. Louis, they didn't make that many moves uh, following their Stanley Cup victory. You had, obviously, Pat Maroon, and then you had Jacob De La Rose for uh, – was it Robbie Fabry? No, not Robbie Fabry. It was, uh, yeah, it was Robbie Fabry. It was Rob- Robbie Fabry, It yeah. was Robbie Fabry. So they didn't really do much, and I understand when coaches and GMs want to keep sort of stability to not shake things up too much, but I feel like you could have done a few more things differently if you were the St. Louis Blues to sort of push them over the edge again and see if they can sort of – uh, get a taste at least at a cup once again. But yeah, they, they've done Vancouver. a good job of not throwing all their futures out the window yes. to bolster this team right now. So they, they've done the smart thing, really, yeah. which is not – they won the Stanley Cup last year without chucking a bunch of draft picks and prospects out the window to bring in rentals. Yeah. Like, they've done good on that. They didn't do it this year, which is good. But I wonder now, depending on if they keep Petrangelo or not, if that's something they maybe start to do because they realize – this is their window. They're never going to have right. better shots at the cup right now. They got to do it before Colorado really takes hold of the division, which they already are. So yeah. And then you're going to be a team to watch. You're right. They didn't, they didn't give off too many futures. They still have Jordan Cairo in the system. Vince Dunn is an up and coming left defenseman who I'm very high on yeah. uh, Robert Thomas as well. So it's not completely bleak for them. It's just a situation where they're going to need to see if they can put themselves over the edge once again, or if Petrangelo is done there, what that means for the rest of the players. Um, Schwartz, et cetera. So we'll see with them. But 
uh, in that series, honestly, credit to Vancouver. They were a ton of fun to watch. And um, Absolutely. Good for Vancouver and yeah. good for Canada. We get a team in the second yeah. round finally again. Yeah. So, yeah, it can be lots of fun to watch them play the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, yes. In more unfortunate news, just sort of step away from hockey, related to hockey, but like more, more towards hockey culture, something Nick and I, you and I have talked endlessly about hockey culture, the toxicity um, within hockey culture, and that is Mike Milbury. Um, and he, in the game between the Capitals and the Islanders, um, one of the analysts was talking to him about the bubble, life in the bubble, and he responded by saying, and there's no, there aren't any women there to bug you either. And this, if there's one person I expected it from, if not Don Cherry, it was Mike Milbury. And this is really disappointing because this is what Nick and I have been talking about so much, sort of put a change towards hockey culture. Hockey especially is one of the few sports that is notorious for this. And I don't, I don't want to say I'm surprised that Mike Milbury did it. Um, he is known to be bad at everything. He was a terrible coach. He is a terrible analyst. He is, he beat someone, uh, beat a fan with his own shoe. One of the worst GMs of all time. Yep. So this is really unfortunate as a result though. Um, he decided to step away from NBC. I don't know if NBC or they, they removed him. I don't know if they released a statement yet. Yeah, he, I've got the statement one. pulled up here. So okay. th this from Mike Milbury through NBC. He said, in light of the attention caused by my recent remark, I've decided to step away from my role at NBC Sports for the remainder of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Milbury's statement reads, I do not want my presence to interfere with the athletes as they try to win the greatest trophy in sports. So, um, brutal. I don't see an apology there. No. Um, that's the worst part. And look, I'm... Why, why Milbury was employed to begin with is beyond me, but this is what we've been talking about for years now. Ever since we've been doing the show is while there's always room for improvement and while we love our sports so much, there's still issues that lie within, especially in hockey. And it's funny to see the backlash, like who was it? Rachel, Rachel Duffy, um, a Fox host, said uh of course cancel culture is at it again it was a harmless joke um nbc is a is a clown organization all this stuff um i think it's i think it's time whether even quote aside he should not be on there to begin with but this just sort of adds to it and adds the toxicity that we talk about nick what are your thoughts on this entire thing it, we did a full episode uh, in light of Dan Carcillo's lawsuit, class action lawsuit against the Canadian Hockey League about hockey culture. We didn't talk about sexism and misogyny so much, uh, as much as we probably should have in that episode, because it is such an issue. There are so many female fans in hockey, so many female hockey players, and hockey in the National Hockey League, National hockey League needs to do a lot better for them, because... Yeah. It's so disappointing that this stuff goes on. And uh, at the All-Star Game this year, we took a really good step having the uh, Canadian and Canadian American women's players play against each other in that three-on-three -three style game. I thought that was awesome that they were part of that weekend. It seemed like the NHL, for the first time, was taking a good step forward to include women and make them more of a conversation piece around the game of hockey. But when you still have your top media outlet for the NHL, NBC, it's their biggest TV contract. When you still have people like Mike Milbury employed, somebody who really doesn't, I can't name one person that enjoys Mike Milbury's work. I really can't. So when you have somebody like that, that it, he's, he is a distraction. It's not the women and the wives of, and girlfriends of hockey players that are the distraction from yeah. hockey. It's people like Mike Milbury because yeah. it, it's just, such bullshit that this stuff still happens yeah. like it's you cannot even make that up and you know mike milbury's statement i think you pointed it out it, it didn't seem like there was much of an apology he said he didn't want to interfere with the athletes it's right. like that's not the issue that's you couldn't no. be more off with that the issue is you made a comment that you shouldn't have made yeah and, and it, it like you said the fox host uh making it seem like this was a harmless joke i don't i think that's off base as well because yeah. when you're making a casual comment like that when that's just something that comes to your brain in the middle of a hockey game an NHL playoff game no matter what the yeah. circumstances of this year are when that's something that's just coming to your head as yeah. analysis it, it points to 
crap behavior. It points to misogynistic tendency that is evident in a lot of hockey players and a lot of hockey fans. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that agree with Mike Milbury. And until things like this are removed from media and are removed from the game of hockey, we cannot continue to move forward and it'll just be dragged back. You don't hear this from NBA analysts, NFL analysts, soccer analysts, any other sport. You don't hear it. It only somehow always ends up being hockey. And exactly. it sucks so bad. Exactly. This is, uh, it, throughout all of this, if 2020, if there's any positive, it's that Mike Milbury and Don Cherry will, will not be on, on TV moving forward. But no, this is, this is unfortunate. And, and it all, I think it discourages younger women who are looking to get into hockey. Look, like I covered um, women's hockey when I, when I did stuff with the Queens, my dad coached women's hockey. We, you know, we work with plenty of, of talented women in the industry. And I feel like stuff like this is, can be discouraging and I think it's unfortunate to see that even today um, this stuff is happening and you see people talk about cancel culture and I think cancel culture has become a buzz term for people who don't believe in taking accountability for actions. I think there are certain situations where yes maybe cancel culture has gone a bit too far and maybe sometimes repercussions for something that was a joke have gone too far. I don't think this was one of those examples though. I think this is something you, you don't say and um, hopefully Mike Milbury will be gone. He said he's been removed for the playoffs. I think he should be gone for good. I don't think he should have a, any business being being in there because of the comments and because he's not very good at his job. He's never been someone, he's never been a, a thought leader. He's never been someone who who was a go-to for, for analysis. Um, so we'll see what happens. And another thing I think, and this is what we talked about with the Garrett Taylor, um, and, uh, Carcillo class action lawsuit was, it would be nice to see other media members talk about it. It would be nice to see other media members. A lot of women in the media that have stepped up and denounced what Mike Milbury has said and you know, I'm not a distraction was something that was trending. That was great to see a bunch of women yeah. in hockey media stepping up and in our program too. You know, yeah. In, yeah. In our program in sport media at Ryerson, yeah. it's a lot of, a lot of women, this really, again, united them together. And there was a lot of good discussion about it from women. But online. that's it. That's, that's what but we that's saw. With, there was not exactly. enough male media members that stepped up and exactly. were talking about this issue. I know one Ian Mendez in Ottawa, uh, had some great tweets about it and he's always been somebody that I find is really positive and has a good voice on these issues but you know I don't think there's still enough discussion about these things and I don't know if that goes back to things we've discussed like fear of uh, losing access and right. different things like that it, it's unfortunate that this bullshit still happens like, yeah exactly and you can't you can't believe it that in and, 2020 it still happens and that's exactly what we talked about with, with the Carcilla thing is so few media members said anything about it. I think Tara Sloan commented like a couple hearts, something like that. There weren't a lot, there was no traction on something uh, that that's serious. And I think it speaks to the, the media also as a responsibility. I want to see Bob McKenzie, Elliot Friedman. I want to see other people who say they're for this stuff, prove it by actually backing some of the members who, who would have been offended because it's, it's not fair and it happens um, more often than you might think. So um, through all of this, that's been the most unfortunate thing out of, out of what's been a pretty fun uh, uh, playoffs. So we'll hope we'll hopefully have some updates soon on, on what will happen with Mike Milbury. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know you, Luke and I, we're always aiming to be, you know, good voices on these issues and we, we still want to do more to help talk, uh, talk about the issues with hockey that's why we did the episode that we did a couple of months ago. We'll probably do something else like that soon. I think we, we can have some people on here and have some good discussions that there's not enough of constantly. So of course. Like, that's something I think we should definitely look at doing and something we will be doing. Of course. All right, moving on now to the Eastern Conference, um, starting with the Tampa Bay Lightning and Columbus Blue Jacket. This one also ended in five. Um, First thing I want to talk about just before we get to anything else is John Tortorella's rant. Um, I know John Tortorella is funny and sometimes his back and forth with the media is funny. Entertaining. Uh, it's entertaining. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes I think the media does ask stupid questions, but in this, in this case, you lost a series. Obviously it sucks. Coaches are pissed off. Like this isn't new. Every coach does it. And he went up there and he says, sorry guys, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk about the moral victories. Have a nice night. Something along those lines and just walked out. 
and I don't know who the reporter was that was asking the question, but just said, I don't know, how are you feeling? Because first of all, this is the media's job. And I think it's just so dated and it's not funny anymore to me at least. And I'm losing the, you know, it's not, it's not like when he was asked what, uh, what people would pick up with the, with no fans. He said, Oh, I don't give a shit. That's kind of funny, but this is different because the series is over when the next media availability is for a coach, they don't know. They have to write a story and he does that. He does this so often. And, and for me personally, and as two students in sport media um, in that landscape, I think it's frustrating. And I think media has a right to be frustrated. I think at a certain point, um, Tortorella needs to be told to, to cut it out. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, his antics are becoming pretty tiresome. He's been at it for so long, right? Yeah. He's, been, he's been at this for the better part of the 2000s now. Again, I, I feel for the media in Columbus because, like you said, they have a job to do. They, it's their job to write on the game. And so often what a coach has to say and how a coach is doing has so much to do with the stories that come out of a hockey yeah. game. And, you know, it's his job. I feel it's part of his job at least to give them something. It's that symbiotic relationship that Definitely. hockey and media have to have. It's They need to work together because, you know, if – a reporter were to write something criticizing Tortorella and the Blue Jackets or giving pure speculation, which he has always ranted about, whether it was his time in New York or Vancouver, he hates when the media speculates, but they're going to speculate if he's not giving them anything. It's their right? job. It's their job. <laughs> it's their like, job, yeah. At the end of the day. So I, I feel bad and, you know, I don't, um, I don't see what Tortorella has to be too upset about with them losing to Tampa Bay. Well, they did play good in some of the games, and they probably – it was a lot closer than a 4-1 series. We had a five-overtime game and, uh, you know, a second-overtime game that wrapped the series up, and Columbus was in the with them every step of the way. But at the end of the day, Tampa Bay Lightning are just that much better, and yeah. it, it showed. It showed. That's what it was. It's no fault of Tortorella's. Yep. He outcoached Sheldon Keefe and got Columbus to this point, but yep. – they, they've ridden a hot goalie in Corpus Allo, uh through the play-in series with Toronto and because they were largely not the better team at 5v5 in that series and they scraped through in a game five. But I, I, I can't see what Tortorella has to be too upset about. Yeah, like, I really I, do. At the end of the day, the moral victory is what Columbus gets in all this because they, exactly. were, they were not even supposed to be here. Exactly. Nobody thought anything of them after they lost to Zingle, Duchesne, Panera, and Bobrovsky at the end of last year. So, yeah. I can't see what Tortorella has to be too pissed off about. hundred percent. I agree with absolutely everything you just said. The moral victory is what they have actually. Um, like you said, five OT, double OT, they played pretty well, but Tampa, Tampa's a good team. And considering that a lot of people expected Toronto to, to beat Columbus, the fact that they made it this far is huge. And um, I think at a certain point, this has to stop. Like, obviously, we come back to the thing with, with Brooks in, 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 in New York. You know what I'm saying, Brooksy, that whole exchange. Yeah. And that was funny. Classic. And he, and he was funny on the panel, and he is funny. And sometimes he says stuff when he answered the, the reporter's phone at the podium. That stuff is funny, but I think no matter how emotions are – like, if players did that, there would be a lot more average. But because it's Tortorella, I think we go to accept it because it's him. Right. But players don't say, "I'm not. no, I'm not doing it. I'm not talking to you and walk out. You know, players right. understand they have a responsibility. Players, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of players have, like, a contractual obligation to the team yes. to face the media at some point. Yes. So while Tortorella can go out and technically fulfill the obligation, like, he's, he's not yes. doing anything for the reporters. Yes. He's not doing it, – it looks bad on everybody. And it looks worse when you're the coach because players, players are the ones who, who, who played 20, 30 minutes. They are exhausted. They are the ones who, who lost. They are the ones who, who reap the reward more so than the coach, I guess you could argue. And to have Torella do that, you know, there are, there are rare occasions when players will say, I'm not taking questions from you or I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to have, and they have closed door meetings or whatever. That's fine. But I think I'm losing track of the amount of times Torella has done this. And I think it's, I think it's irritating, but Moving on. It's distracted from the series, yeah, which is unfortunate exactly. because, because there were some good hockey games and the Tampa Bay Lightning played really well. And I think like after the complete, for lack of a better word, shit show that last year was where Columbus swept them and everything like that. I think, you know, everybody got a little carried away this year and sort of just, we'll touch on it later, but almost like just didn't respect the Tampa Bay Lightning and That's their the greatness next, enough. Exactly. So, and then just one last thing on the Torello thing, I think talk about 
the talk surrounding Columbus, I think, would be a lot more positive if Tortorella acknowledged the moral victories that mm-hmm. were there instead of just writing it off as, no, we lost, we sucked, we were terrible, whatever it, whatever it is he, he recycles. Um, as for the Tampa Lightning, because you, you brought up a point I was going to bring up, I'll bring it up now, that is, I don't want to say underrated because Tampa is not an underrated team, but everyone's talking about Dallas, everyone's talking about Colorado, Vancouver, um, even Carolina was getting a lot more media attention this year, and it almost seems that the Tampa Bay Lightning, they seem to have been forgotten a little bit by the media. Not underdogs, but do you think they're underappreciated? Yes, because of last year, I think they're really underappreciated. Obviously, they had just a record-breaking season in all facets last year. They were the best team in the NHL by a large, large margin in the regular season 2018-19, but it all fell apart in that four-game series against Columbus, and Nobody could have ever predicted that was going to happen. No. But essentially, they were outclassed by Columbus in the playoffs last year. Columbus played their asses off, and they mm. beat them fair and square. Like, they just demolished them, essentially. But that was last year. This year is this year. And I think Tampa Bay, they've worked hard to strengthen that team throughout the season. They brought in Barclay Goodrow, Blake Coleman, to really round out that offense, to really balance it. Their defense is good. Andre Vasilevsky is a good goaltender. They have all the pieces they need. They have as good of a team as anybody in the league, if not the best team in the league. Like, they really are that good. John Cooper, excellent coach. Like, this team was not talked about nearly enough coming into this playoff because all the hype was, okay, well, Boston, who was excellent in the regular season this year, and we're on track to for the President's Trophy before – you know, even though they weren't technically the number one seed in the playoffs this year, but they were the President's Trophy winners. And they were like, but Tampa Bay completely underrated in that respect because we're talking about Boston, like you said. We were talking about Carolina. We're talking about the Islanders and Barry Trotz. Yeah. It, it just seems like there's not enough respect on the Tampa Bay Lightning. So I think they're going to continue to earn that. And the series versus Boston should be really interesting because yeah. the winner of that series should, should win the East, but we'll yep. see. Yep, we'll see. I agree completely. I think they're unbelievably underrated. Not underrated. I can, I don't want to throw that word around. Underappreciated. Underappreciated, especially this year. Like I said, Carolina was getting a lot more attention than them. Rightfully so. Carolina is a is a rising team, and they have a lot to be, a lot to look forward to. But it almost seems like a lot was taken away from the Tampa Bay Lightning. So, uh, moving on to the Islanders and the Capitals. This one ended in five. Um, the Islanders, Beauvillier. Um, Barzal, Nick Letty, they played excellent. I think what this one came down to was coaching, and mm-hmm. we'll get into the coaching element, especially on the Washington side. Um, Barry Trotz is my favorite coach. He's been my favorite coach for the last five years. He's an excellent um, communicator. He's great behind the bench. He's, I don't want to say old school because the underlying metrics are good, but when he shuts it down defensively, he doesn't do so by by playing the trap or allowing more chances and kind of sitting back. He does it in a way where the Islanders are still dominating the play and dominating possession. I think we saw that a lot of times with the Islanders, the way they sort of, they play a well-rounded system, even though on paper, they are not that good of a team. And I feel like we've been saying this for the last three years, as long as we've been doing the show, really that on paper, they are not that good of a hockey team. And in just about every area, except for maybe goaltending, the Capitals have the advantage, but that was not evident this series. And um, what are your thoughts? This Islanders over Washington should be a shock, but it's not really a shock because the Islanders and Barry Trotz just completely dominated Washington. Like you said, in the whole areas of the ice, Barry Trotz, his defensive system worked really well. The Islanders don't have a lot of good offensive weapons. They have some fine players. Matt Barzal, I think, is a game breaker. Uh, Beauvillier's really risen. His stock, Anders Lee, Josh Bailey, fine, fine players, but there's not really that dominant, dominant offensive force that they have. So I think Barry Trott, since he left Washington, has done a really good job adapting to that in New York. And he's taken this team for what it is, not what he wants it to be. And he's modified how he coaches a hockey team to make the Islanders be able to suffocate teams defensively. Not so much a trap game, but, you know, he, he preaches the defensive side of the game a lot. And the really good goaltending that they've gotten the past few years obviously helps this. Like we can't deny that if the Islanders didn't get 920, 930 goaltending, they'd probably be a lot worse than they are yeah. because of that lack of offense. But 
their 5v5 defense is still really, really good. So it, it worked to their advantage against Washington, who really relied on Ovechkin. Ovechkin was really good in the first round. I think it's unfortunate for him because he scored a bunch of goals, but I, it wasn't a good matchup for Washington, especially with their goaltending problems this year. You knew if the Islanders were able to just yeah. get a couple of goals in these games, then they were going to be in trouble, Washington. Yeah. I, I agree completely. And then obviously the biggest news that found out this morning, uh, Todd Reardon has been relieved of his duties um, as head coach in Washington. And that also, that must feel good for Barry Trotz, by the way, winning, winning against his former mm-hmm. team that he won the cup for. Um, that's obviously mm-hmm. has to be a boost for him, but Todd Reardon relieved. Um, I was curious about this. I didn't think it would happen this year. I thought at least he'd have another year before they sort of made this decision. Um, but there are, Plenty of replacement options. You have Gerard Gallant, Peter Laviolette, Bruce Boudreaux, someone like Babcock, but I feel like they're not going to go in that direction. Even some of the assistants in the league, um, Michelle Terrian, Mike Yeo, uh, even someone I saw Pierre Lebrun tweet out, Kirk Miller, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think they would do that. But the main ones, Gallant, Laviolette, Boudreaux, do you think they go for any of those or what are your thoughts on who the replacement can be? Yeah, well, going back to what you said with Reardon, like sort of the unexpected factor in this, I don't blame them for making sort of like a knee-jerk decision because you only have so many years of Alexander Ovechkin left. You know, you've got Ilya Samsonov, who's going to be the starter next year. It seems like Braden Hopi's on his way out. You've still got Kuznetsov, Backstrom, all the core guys under contract. So you've got to maximize that. You've got to continue to make good playoff runs. So I'm not surprised that they made the decision with Reardon when they did now mm-hmm. there was sort of some underlyings pointing towards maybe that the Washington Capitals were sort of overrated I sort of understand yep. that but I don't yep. I don't think Reardon was a terrible coach by any stretch I, it, this was his first real gig in the NHL so I, I don't think he was that bad given no. the circumstances and what the team is but I think there are some good replacements out there. You know, we've criticized the fact that teams just recycle coaches in this league and all that. So I don't think bringing in somebody like a Mike Yo or Mike Babcock or like any of those coaches uh, is a good idea. Like Kirk Muller, I can't see that happening. But a couple of guys like Gallant and like Boudreau, who are good coaches, really good regular season coaches at least, have a good track record. I, I could see those being a fit. Gallant, I think, would be an excellent fit because I think he sort of got a raw deal in Vegas by the end of it. And, you know, we, we've talked about it before, what a crap deal he got in Florida. Yes. But I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to predict it right now, I think they go back to Boudreaux. I could see it happening. I think it's a good situation. Boudreaux did a good job uh, with the Capitals back when they were young and up and coming back in sort of 2009. Whether Alex Ovechkin wants to play for Bruce Boudreau again remains to be seen. That's the big question, Mark. It's a big question. But he he did a fine job with Minnesota this Mm. year, I think underrated. And he he got a crap deal there because he coached them to some really good regular season success. They had a 50-win season a couple of years ago. Minnesota's not that great of a team, never have been. So I think the only thing that has always been Boudreau's failure is the winning in the playoffs, and everybody knows about that. But – I could see a situation where he goes back there, but it all depends on what Ovechkin wants. So, Right. I think, um, I think the best fit would be Gallant. I'm not sure if, if their management's going to look at someone who's had a little bit more long-term success, someone like Laviolette and Boudreaux, they've been in the league a long time. Um, I also think Gallant, I can't really say he'd be a good fit in uh, Seattle, but I have a feeling that Seattle would look at those guys as well, Gallant and Laviolette, but um, we'll see what happens there. Um, Moving on, we have two more series to get to, and this is Boston and Carolina. Um, I didn't watch a lot of this series. The games I did watch, I honestly didn't find that exciting. Um, two teams I'm not, I don't care too much about. But um, for all the hype around the Carolina Hurricanes, they came up short. And for a Boston team that was missing David Pasternak for a significant amount of time, he came back in Game Five, and it looked like he never missed a beat. And let's start with Carolina. What do you think went wrong for them? I don't know what it is. I just don't think they stack up well against Boston. Boston is such a dominant team at even strength. And, you know, Carolina is a, a brilliant, brilliant offensive team. They don't have so many superstars, but they are still a very, very good uh, puck possession team and all that. The advanced stats community has long loved them. 
I just don't think they work out so well against Boston because Boston's really strong defensively. And uh, Tuka Rask, when he <laughs> started the first game, was like fine. But after he uh, left the bubble and all that fiasco ensued, I think Yarrow Halak came in and played pretty decently. But I think the writing was on the wall when Carolina blew, uh, I think it was the 2 nothing lead in the yeah. third period where they didn't have a shot on goal and Boston had four goals. I think that was game five. I think the writing was on the wall then. I think Boston really got the depth scoring going too. DeBrusque was really good. David Krejci was really good. Yeah. So I think that sort of took it, that sort of hid the fact that Pasternak was not playing for a chunk of that series. They got the depth scoring. So that's that's ultimately what Carolina's undoing was. Boston's yeah. just a deeper team at, in all areas. Yeah, and I, I like what you said. They they kind of stack up. They don't stack up well against Boston. Boston plays a very intense style, very physical style. Someone like DeBrusque, who I'm very fond of. I thought that goal where Reimer pushed a little bit, that was the biggest question mark, because if Reimer didn't push, the series maybe could have took a different turn. Mm-hmm. Carolina could have had momentum going into it. But nonetheless, Boston takes it. Boston's a strong team. We'll see what happens. I don't. Oh, the one thing I want to add about uh, Carolina before I move on is what's next for Justin Williams? That's sort of the biggest question mark. Do you think he retires? Do you think he has one more season left in him? Um, does he? He's on one. He's on a one-year deal, right? So he yes, can test yes. the market. Hard, hard to say for Justin Williams because I think he's in a good situation, Carolina. I think he mm-hmm. likes being back there. Yeah. Again, he's getting old. He's done it all in the NHL now. Brilliant, brilliant playoff performer. I, I think Carolina would like to bring him back. I could see them totally wanting to bring him back. Great influence on that team. I think the fact that he took half of this season off too and then had the three-month break, I think that's good for his body because he's put so many miles on his NHL career now. So I think because of the COVID break, because of the half-season break, I could see a situation where he plays next year, but I wouldn't blame him for retiring. He's done it all. There's nothing else he has left to prove in the NHL. Yeah. So. Yep, I would agree completely. I think fans... I think it's Carolina or Bust, though. Yeah. I, I can't I, see him I playing think... anywhere else. Yeah, I agree. I think we get too caught up in wanting a player to return. We don't take into account the mental toll, the physical toll, the family aspect, moving, right. uh, all that stuff. So um, moving on to the final series, final round uh, in the – final series in the first round, sorry – that is Montreal Canadiens and the Philadelphia Flyers. This one ended in six games. Um, a lot to take away from this series, um, mainly because Montreal, there were positives and negatives from this. I think the negative would be missing out on the Lafreniere sweepstakes and obviously missing out on ninth overall to pick 16th. That being said, I would argue that the positives sort of outweigh the benefits, and that is before, prior to this whole series, uh, Kotkaniemi was injured and he was playing in the AHL. Um, Nick Suzuki had a fine season. Philip Deneau was the the one C. And there was a lot of uncertainty going forward as to whether or not they would be able to develop these two players. And I think this this series alone, even in the Pittsburgh one as well, proved that Montreal has a one-two tandem, a one-two punch of these two players, which for me is obviously an excellent thing because I haven't seen this team have a center since Zaku Koivu. And even then he was... He was good, but he was not like a, a bona fide like one C. So um, it's bittersweet. It would have been nice to draft ninth overall. Bergman said yesterday in his press conference that um, that the gap between nine and sixteen isn't that big. I disagree big time yeah. because I I, I think that, I think for that uh, that that's just him. Yeah, we we've talked about people doing their jobs a lot in this show, and that's Bergman yeah. doing his job, just trying to stoke the <laughs> calm yeah. fans down. But nonetheless, they, they, they lose in six to Philly. Um, they outplayed Philly, if you want to pull up that um, thing from earlier. What are your thoughts, what are your thoughts on this series? Um, what do you take away as positive and negative uh, for the Montreal Canadiens? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head where you said, obviously, missing out on Lafreniere. It's really unfortunate for Montreal because I think, you know, obviously, I think you would agree with this too. Longer term, that would have been the better outcome for Montreal is drafting Alexi Lafreniere or having a pick in the top 10 would have helped Montreal a lot more longer term. But, you know, there were some positives. We got to see, like you said, Suzuki and Kakanyemi, two best players for them throughout the entire playoffs, besides Carey Price, I think. Kakanyemi, I don't think you'll agree with this as well, had an extremely, extremely poor regular season. He yeah. was terrible in the NHL, went down the AHL, sort of played a lot better. 
but I think overall expectations for Kakanyemi weren't met this year. But in the oh, playoffs, 100%. he looked like a completely different player, yeah. which was really that, – that was something I wasn't expecting to see at all. Suzuki had a nice rookie year, and he looks good in the playoffs too. Uh, like you said, those should be their go-to guys down the middle. Depends how high of a ceiling you think either of them have. That certainly is up for debate all around the league, I find, constantly. Uh, whether either one of them is a true game-breaking number one center, like I, I – sort of doubt that I don't think either is going to be an elite number one center ever but I think they're both solid like 1b type options I could see that scenario and those are good players to have Mm -hmm. so I think I think that's the positive for Montreal here I think the only negative that's going to come out of this now and I know you're going to agree with this because you've ranted about Bergevin plenty of times on the show is I think this playoff appearance and everything that's happened sort of it hides now what the big issue with Montreal has been for years. It's the mediocrity. And, you know, you were preaching that they should have traded Jeff Petrie at the deadline. And maybe there were some players they should have moved out like others, like uh, Drew and Domi could have been on the move at some point because of their underwhelming years. I think this is just going to prolong that because I still think all that's going to come. They're going to trade away sort of those aging players at some point. But I think this prolonged that process, which I think is – it's a negative, I think, because yeah. Montreal still needs to get younger. They, they still have a lot more room for improvement on this yes. team. Uh, because you look at uh, – you know, you look at the division. There's Toronto, who's, you know, still really good despite their failures in the playoff. Boston, Tampa Bay are still really good. Yeah. O- Ottawa is on the rise Detroit yep. is Detroit's a bit behind Ottawa in the process now, yep. but they, they are going to be good eventually. Buffalo at some point has to be good, right? <laughs> well, uh, we, we hope, we hope, we hope. We'll see who they pick. but no, I, I agree. So I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Montreal, sorry. Uh, Montreal is probably still uh, like now, where do they fit into that? Because they're not one of the risers. May, they're sort of a riser, but not to the extent of what Ottawa yeah. and Detroit are looking to do, but they're not good at the level that exactly. Tampa Bay, Toronto, and Boston are, but they're not bad at the level that Florida and Buffalo, they are the tweener of the Atlantic division. So it's peculiar. You are preaching to the choir, uh, my friend. That's what I, that's the, I've been beating the same drum forever. Um, I agree. I think ninth long-term first or ninth would have done um, wonders for this team would have definitely not put them over the edge, but helped sort of, uh, accelerate the process of them becoming a better faster younger team um there are some good players at 16 i'm not i'm not too upset about getting 16 but i think for me the biggest positive like i said before was the emergence of suzuki and kakanimi more more so suzuki um and then the the play the the analyst on sports i think he could become like a patrice bergeron i think that's a wild comparison i think yeah that's a bit much he has a he has a fantastic two-way game he's excellent defensively and um i think he could be like a 70 point center i think that's perfectly reasonable um we'll see what happens there but as for the offseason and and the outlook for them it's really tricky because you have domi tatar drouin as your left wingers you have gallery who's an rfa um next year and he's making 3.7 domi's a rfa this year what their demand might be of all those left wingers, despite Domi being the guy that everyone seems to love the most, I'm still keeping Drew and despite my issues with the trade. I think Tatar could have been sold this year. If they sell him sold uh, the deadline, if they sell him next year, that's fine. But Domi and Tatar are two players. I would always move before Jonathan Drew. I think if you're looking at the value they can get for Jonathan Drew, his yeah, value is a lot higher. Yeah, I think, well, yes, it's, it's higher. It's higher for, I, I think it's higher for Domi because Julian's value is an all time low yes. given the year he had. And I do think when you give up a guy a ninth overall in Sergachev for that game breaking winger that they thought they were getting, they want him to work. So I do think they'll give him a couple more chances before they throw in the towel with him. Um, disappointed with the tar disappointed with Domi. I think as far they as they fell flat, they really, yeah, did. they did. And, and I know we talked earlier about uh, maybe trading Jeff Petrie. He's someone that I would look to resign. Um, especially since Weber and Sherrod are, are guys that, that I don't think can hold hold a blue line. Yeah, and um, you put we had the graphic up earlier with uh, how Montreal performed the series, and you know what, you could we could make the argument that they definitely deserved better in that series. Yep. Um, but it it's worth noting that if Tatar and Gallagher 
and some of those players and Domi were on their game, if they really were truly on their game, they, there's no reason why they shouldn't have beat Philadelphia in the series. Yep. So I think, but I think the biggest storyline, we talked about it, uh, the likelihood of it, we discussed it prior to the plan was the X factor was Carey Price. Could he get back to that Olympic level that he was at yeah. back in 2014 uh, against all odds he did. Yeah. And if Montreal gets that goaltending from Price going forward, obviously so many people are against that contract and rightfully so. Yep. But if they get that level of goaltending going forward, there's no reason why they shouldn't at least continue to fight in yeah. sort of the wild card position. But it's it's a that, really risky game to play. Yeah, in. that's that my that like I will always acknowledge that he is he is the best. My issue with that is I just think that is a lot for a goalie who can only even when he's at top of his game he can only do so much he can right. he still cannot put the pucks in the net like we saw even when he was at the top of his game four of the seven goals went off Montreal Canadiens players yeah. that tells you that even when he's at the top of his game fluky stuff like that doesn't matter how good you are you still need someone to score so that was sort of my main issue with right. with that but we can see what happens i think obviously it's been seven years and he hasn't had like a strong serviceable backup. So that'll be a need for them. But let's talk about Philadelphia a little bit here because um, I wasn't impressed whatsoever. Uh, they Vigneault plays the trap. They're relatively slow team. Um, they don't have many players that drive the play offensively. Couturier, their five on five offense is actually quite dreadful. Their five on five defense is excellent. Um, with the exception of Couturier and Voracek, I didn't notice someone like Claude Giroux. I didn't notice Hayes too much. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on Philadelphia and what do you think they need to work on? Because, you know, they're up against uh, the Islanders and those are two similar teams in a way, but I think the Islanders are going to take it. So what do you think um, the, the Flyers have to, have to work on going forward? Well, this will be good because I think Philadelphia is still going to take it. Um, okay. I think I think the Flyers. I think what they have that the Canadians didn't in that series. It's the game-breaking offensive talent, right? Uh, the Voracek's, the Giroux's, the Hayes, all that. Like they have they have the players that Montreal doesn't, and they still get good goaltending from Carter Hart, which is a big positive for them. Right. So Philadelphia is a weird team because they really came out of nowhere this year. And Vino's done a good job coaching them. Like they, they, they are a lot more structural than they were in the past. So yeah, I, I, that's what it is at the end of the day. It's the offense that Philadelphia was getting the secondary scoring, all that, that Montreal wasn't getting. Right. So Philadelphia is a weird team, but they are playing effective. They are red hot lay And Like I said, with Dallas part of playoff success and a lot of, a lot of being in the playoffs is getting hot at the right time. Right. Philadelphia is red hot right now. There's no reason why they shouldn't at least put up a really good fight. And I think the series with the Islanders is going to be a really good one. Yeah. Um, we can move on from this series because the, the only thing I have left really is predictions for the next round. Yep. If you want to jump into that. Yeah, we'll do some quick um, predictions. Okay. Rapid fire. Tampa, Boston. I have Tampa and six. Yeah, I'll go Tampa and six as well. I just, they hold, Boston's deep. That's their advantage on everybody. I think Tampa Bay matches them well in that. And I think more offense should be fine for them. All right, Philly, New York. I have the Islanders in seven. Okay, I'm going Philly in six. Okay. Uh, The Golden Knights and the Canucks. I have the Golden Knights in seven. I'm going to do the Golden Knights in five. Vancouver, nice story and all that. But Vegas is too much of a powerhouse at this point, I think. So, Okay, Dallas and – I just realized I have three game sevens here. Um, Dallas and Colorado, I have Dallas and seven. Okay, Colorado and six for me. Okay. That just about does it. Wrap it up yeah. here. Okay. Yeah. Um, that just about does it for another episode of Take to Take. We'll be back once again, maybe mid – in the middle of the second round – or at the end to recap things. Unless yeah, we'll, we'll see news. how bad our predictions look again. Yes, that's we're notorious for part. awful predictions. Uh, we'll be back shortly. Thanks again. Thank you, Nick, for being here. And for those listening, uh, we'll see you then.